The line between fact and fiction can often be blurry. Our brains constantly try to connect one thing to another, creating stories that may or may not exist. So how can you tell when a connection is a bona fide clue or simply a series of coincidences? And which ones can lead you directly to a killer? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families with the missing and murder. Join me. We're crossing the line. No matter how you view the evidence in this case, there are some things that are obvious. Most murders are exactly what that prosecutor articulates so concisely. Sometimes things are just so goddamn obvious, we might think, hell, no one is that stupid. Yet, when you come down to it, intelligent people, or at least people with the modicum of decency, common sense, and a knack for self-preservation, rarely commit murder. So let's take a dive into this week's specific brand of stupidity, which I always like. Our story begins in Portland, Oregon, at the Oregon Culinary Institute. It's your typical foodie heaven if you're an aspiring chef. You've seen these types of schools all over the country, or at least billboards or early morning TV ads for them. This one in particular is downtown, close to the Portland Art Museum and Providence Park area. It's a warm Pacific Northwest morning on June 2nd, 2018. Students begin arriving at Chef Daniel Brophy's class inside the culinary school. Brophy loved his career and his life's work. He lived for food and the craft of preparing it and had dedicated the better part of 40 years to culinary arts. The 63-year-old chef hardly ever missed a day of work. The sprawling kitchen inside the North End Portland School for Chefs was his home away from home, no doubt about it. And he loved teaching. I'll say that as well. But as students begin filing into class that morning, a horrifying and surreal image catches their attention as they enter the back kitchen. There is Chef Brophy, lying on the floor, blood pooled around him. It appeared he was in the process of filling buckets of water and ice from the kitchen sink and freezer as he prepared the kitchen for the day's teaching, and he was shot dead. Chef Brophy didn't seem like a guy someone would have a motive to kill. I mean, this, this is really an odd odd crime right from the get-go. He had lived with his wife, Nancy, and they seemed like a happy couple with a nice life. Dogs, a garden, even a few chickens. Heck, there's a photo of Dan, like one of those professionally posed ones you'd get at the mall or something. And he's smiling, holding one of his chickens. His life seemed to be a picture out of Bon Appetit magazine. While Daniel was teaching the future cooks and chefs of the world, his wife of 25 years, Nancy Brophy, had been living her dream as well. She was a writer of both nonfiction and fiction books. By day, she was a technical writer, whipping up things like business pamphlets and how-to manuals, essays, and blog posts, making some extra money for the family. But Nancy's nights were spent penning cheesy paperback romance novels with hunky shirtless guys, six-packs, and sweat on the covers. Mm, hubba hubba. <laughs> That's my producer, Catherine. Those books 
they sell a lot. I mean, yep. my publisher publishes those books and, you know, hey, I'm not going to begrudge a writer for writing those books. I believe they are the most read books in the world, romance novels. And women who read romance novels read more than anyone else. They read like 50, sometimes 100 books a year. They buy them by the armfuls. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know how many yeah. times I've been at a used bookstore and seen somebody walking out with, you know, shirtless guys in the cover with the abs. Fabio. Uh, yeah. Baskets full of them. Yes. The title of Nancy's books, which she self-published, were along the lines of this. The wrong brother, the wrong husband, the wrong cop, the wrong hero, the wrong seal, as in Navy SEAL, the wrong lover. Her series is called, unsurprisingly, Wrong Never Felt So Right. Listen, I don't make this shit up. I just tell the facts as they are, okay? <laughs> Nancy's prose goes something along the cheese grater as this. <laughs> Quote He lifted the duffel bag from the trunk Scanning the empty street as standard routine Paying attention to details Had saved his life more than once Bushes clustered against the white clapboard home On the corner lot shuddered Zach considered dropping a boot To announce his presence And I, I can't so what I'm going to do is <laughs> I'm going to have my producer, Catherine, finish reading this excerpt, which I promise plays a pivotal role in this episode. No bullshit there. So Catherine, take it away in your best romance <clears throat> novel voice. Don't mind if I do. Gordy had his own place. Why would he want to have sex in his mother's house? Zach shuddered at the repugnant idea. She thought Gordy left a note. By the way, if I'm killed... So-and-so will be the murderer. Was she crazy? All right. That uh, wonderful literary composition is from The Wrong Brother. And there's a shirtless hot guy on the cover, of course, and a hot rod car. Perfect. So, as detectives converge at the Institute and begin investigating Daniel Brophy's murder, they, of course, want to visit the primary person a cop would want to speak to first, the spouse of the victim. Nancy gets word that there is, quote, police activity at the school. So she arrives late into the morning, wondering what is happening. She's been working at home, she says, writing, of course. Detectives tell her the news about her now dead husband, then ask about Daniel's morning. And here's what Nancy says. He awoke early, about 4 a.m., fed our chickens, and walked the dogs. I awoke when he came upstairs to have a shower. We discussed a leak in the shower that needed fixing. I'd say he left for work about 7 a.m. Nancy is a mess. She's upset, crying. They consider her a grieving spouse who had just learned that her husband had been brutally slain while at work. Quote, we felt sad for her, one investigator says later. So they release Nancy and continue their interviews. By the end of the day, Nancy is back home and detectives stop by to talk to her. They want to check out the house and go through Daniel's belongings. Standard stuff, really. Find some reason, if there is one, why he could have been targeted. I mean, the guy, he teaches culinary arts. Nancy brings them to a closet and explains she and Daniel had purchased a gun 
after the Parkland, Florida school shooting because she had been feeling unsafe. The cops, of course, want that weapon. She gladly gives the gun to them. Nancy was pushing 70. She's a bit reserved and cagey. She's now a grieving widow, scared, anxious, and still very much upset. They learn her days centered mainly on waking up, then writing in bed on her laptop as Daniel headed down the block to get her a Starbucks before he took off for work. Before her writing career, Nancy had worked in insurance. She'd been good at it. Her former co-workers liked her, and they noticed how affectionate her marriage seemed to be whenever they saw her and Daniel together. Nancy and Daniel met in the early 1990s when he was teaching culinary classes at another school. Daniel was the provider for the most part. Nancy says that all she dreamed of was traveling the world with Daniel, who was set to retire very soon. She'd spent over a quarter century with the guy and loved him immensely. She called Daniel smart, funny, kind, humble, and they never had a serious conflict or doubted their commitment to each other. And here's a quote from Nancy. His weaknesses were my strengths. My strengths tended to be his weaknesses. Together, it just fit immediately and never stopped. The day after Daniel's murder, Nancy posts a Facebook message. Quote, For those of you who are close to me and feel this deserved a phone call, you are right. But I'm struggling to make sense of everything right now. End quote. It's understandable, right? She's in mourning and doesn't want to talk about it. People deal with tragedy and loss differently. Who are we to judge? You know, this is a strange place for a murder, as well as an unlikely murder victim. A food instructor, a chef in a commercial kitchen while prepping the classroom for the day. Could it possibly be a robbery gone bad? I mean, if I'm an investigator, that's probably the first thing I want to look at. But then again, what are you robbing at a culinary institute? Investigators keep looking for clues. They learn immediately that there has been an issue of vagrants hanging out by the school, seedy types, drug users, desperate people. Daniel was well-known in the Portland area for his work with the unhoused community there. It was a part of who Daniel was, same as his quick wit and general off-the-wall sense of humor. Many of his students said this about him. Because of his generous and prolific charity work, a question came up. Had Daniel made an enemy? Had he done something to make someone want to see him dead? One of the first things investigators do nowadays is search for any CCTV surveillance video near a crime scene. This being a school, perhaps they had the shooting on video. The school, however, had no video equipment. Disappointing, but then again, not so uncommon. You're trying to save money, that's one of the first things to go. Outside, nearby, however, a local pizza shop did have video of the area leading up to the entrance of the school. The view wasn't complete, but it gave a small snapshot of the outside. Cops figure they could glean something from that. As investigators began studying that pizza shop surveillance video, which can be a monotonous task, let me tell you, going through hours and hours of basically everyday nothingness, a section of video between 6.39 a.m., and 7.29 a.m. caught their eye. It is so incredible. While watching, detectives actually do a double take. Like, wait a minute, what was that? Rewind that again, I want to see it. 
Daniel Brophy, detectives knew, arrived at school at 7.20 a.m. In that video, though, beginning about 40 minutes before he arrives, they spot a minivan driving around the Institute. Nancy Brophy owns a minivan. Honing in on the driver of the minivan, detectives could not believe their eyes. There's Nancy Brophy at the wheel. It is definitely her. But then how can that be when Nancy had made a statement already that she was at home all morning long? We'll be right back. After seeing Nancy driving around the school on the morning of Daniel Brophy's murder, investigators check other neighborhood video surveillance. And sure enough, there she is again. Nancy is seen arriving near the school at 6.39 a.m. when she had told police she was still in bed. After that, the video shows her minivan parked at a nearby hillside close to the school overlooking the entrance. So it's like she's staking it out. At 7.08 a.m., the van is closer to the school and then drives out of frame. 20 minutes later, it's back again, and then poof, it's gone. This all looked pretty bad for the self-styled romance novelist, but police had to be sure about their suspicions. After all, Nancy looked every bit the chubby-cheeked grandma next door with her white hair and squat frame. Could she have really violently murdered the man she loves so coldly as to roll up on him while he's in the classroom and unload several rounds into him? To speak about her appearance, is she truly, she's like the grandma version of a Gerber baby. She is quintessential (laughs) granny with like her slightly sagging cheeks. Looks like she'd be like, oh, would you like a cookie? Completely. It reminds me of the Ruth Buzzy character on Laughing. You guys are, mm. you guys, but I was too young, but I still have seen the video. Google that, Ruth Buzzy laughing. You'll see what I mean. Nancy had offered police the weapon she had at home, a nine millimeter Glock, the same caliber, police know, used in the murder of her husband. She had been caught lying about her whereabouts the morning of the homicide and also caught on CCTV near the culinary school at the time of the murder. If I'm facing that sort of circumstantial evidence, I am not only sweating bullets, no pun intended, but I am calling a solid defense attorney at this point. Catherine, what say you? She's done a lot of things right, but she's done a lot of things wrong. Like you're driving your own car, girl? You're just, what's this? When I was in junior high, there was a girl that me and a bunch of other girls did not like. She was like popular and mean. And I was like sort of pseudo friends with her in mean girls style. And so I had her locker combination. So over the period of a few months, we stole stuff out of her locker, like little stuff, just so she would know that someone had been in there and things were missing. You were gaslighting her. But then our conscience has got the best of us. And we returned everything in a paper bag and just put it back in her locker. And then this is where we got caught. We went and told the someone, the principal or the girl or whatever, that it was a different girl who had done that. Wow. (laughs) Mean girls. I know. So like immediately the principal was like, do you guys have something to tell us? Since little Susie Eggert had no idea what you were, what anyone was talking about, stealing stuff out of Kim's locker. Uh, now that's a crime. 
You committed, yeah. so you're a criminal. Catherine Law is a criminal. <sighs> three, pe- three fingers pointing back right at myself. So Catherine Criminal Law, that's your name. <laughs> <laughs> so this is when investigators run into their first hurdle. That gun Nancy handed over to the police, the one she bought because she was scared after Parkland, police immediately begin ballistics testing to see if this was the gun used in the murder. And ballistics, by the way, is a forensic tool that has been around for about 100 years, believe it or not. So it works this way. When a bullet is fired from a gun, the barrel leaves microscopic marks and swirls. Think candy cane-like striations on the bullet and cartridge case. Those marks are called ballistic fingerprints. No two are alike. And what you do is compare them under a split-screen microscope, and you can tell if you have a match, just like fingerprints. But in this case, the ballistics do not match. Now, that could mean Nancy used a second weapon and the weapon she handed over was a red herring. She's being real smart there. You know, she's trying to throw them off. But without the murder weapon, as a detective, all you have is a woman in a minivan driving near her husband's place of work around the time of his murder when she claimed to be at home. And Nancy now has a reason for that. Correcting the record, she now says that she had forgotten, oh yeah, geez, within all the hysteria of losing her husband, that she'd run out to get coffee. She explains that she likes to drive around town and work out the narrative problems within her stories. So in all the chaos of the morning and her husband being murdered, she had simply forgotten. Hmm. Funny how that happens. Now, on her own author website, Nancy Brophy talked about being married to Daniel. Catherine, can you do the honors of reading that for me, please? I can't tell you when I fell in love with my husband, but I can relate the moment I decided to marry him. I was in the bath. It was a big tub. I expected him to join me, and when he was delayed, I called out, Are you coming? His answer convinced me he was Mr. Wright. Yes, but I'm making hors d'oeuvres. Can you imagine spending the rest of your life without a man like that? Uh, I can, but that's just me. (laughs) One student says that Nancy Brophy was, quote, the love of Daniel's life, end quote. And he made no secret about how much he loved her. But police soon make a startling discovery. Something huge. As a romantic suspense writer, I spend a lot of time thinking about murder and consequently, about police procedure. After all, if the murder is supposed to set me free, I certainly don't want to spend any time in jail. Now that little gem of writing is from a 700-word essay that Nancy wrote in 2011. Now the title of the essay, and this is important, How to Murder Your Husband. What in the actual... Fuck is that? (laughs) Consider your own paper trail. I mean, we could go down so many roads here with this story. I mean, and I don't want to sound like we're making light of a murder, but look, this is not last podcast on the left. I get that. Right. But (laughs) there are just so many things about this case that baffle my mind as a guy who's really looked into thousands of murders, and then you have a woman who wrote How to Murder Your Husband, And yet she does everything wrong. Well, no one said she was a good writer. 
Oh, that's true. <laughs> or a good researcher. Or a good researcher. She writes about various possibilities on a website for writers called See Jane Publish, giving writerly advice about murder. She goes through a list of sins brought on by marriage, infidelity, abuse, greed, and more, adding, quote, divorce is expensive, ladies, and do you really want to split your possessions, end quote. Ice cold. Nancy then offers a list of weapon options for her fictional murder scenario. Knives, poison, and guns. Quote, I find it easier to wish people dead than to actually kill them. I don't want to worry about blood and brains splattered on my walls. And really, I'm not good at remembering lies. But the thing I know about murder is that every one of us have it in us when pushed far enough. Now, a serial killer once said that exact same thing to me. You are capable of murder, Phelps. Everyone is. You just don't know it. Well, I'm going to call bullshit on both because some people are capable of murder and some people are not capable of murder. I know that from 23 years of work in this industry, okay? Catherine, read another couple quotes here for me from Nancy in her literary excursions. What if killing didn't produce the right results? Would they do it again? Could they do it again? What if they liked it? As much of a smoking gun, so to speak, as this booklet seems, it's still really just circumstantial evidence, okay? But investigators notice another problem with Nancy's story. When she showed up at the culinary school that morning, she somehow knew her husband had been killed before police told her. She explains it away by saying she spoke to Daniel's mother earlier that morning and was told something terrible had happened at the school and just put two and two together, which by the way, I will say, makes four. Yet when investigators spoke with Nancy's mother-in-law, she says Nancy had told her Daniel had been killed. So which is it? Here is Nancy's own explanation of how she knew Daniel had died. She's referring to those moments after she just arrived at the school. I had not been told, but I had not heard from him. All of his friends avoided looking at me, and the police officers knew who I was before I got there, and one police officer hugged me. This is not good news I'm going to hear. But what about that gun found inside the closet of the Brophy house? You know, the gun that she led police to? The gun she offered up when cops were inside her home? From my experience, I can say this. If a suspect rings a bell, they want it to be heard. As investigators go through Nancy's computers, they find out she'd been scrolling around on eBay as far back as November 2017, seven months before Daniel's death, looking for and finally purchasing what is called a ghost gun build kit, additional gun parts matching the gun the Brophy's owned. Here, in this next audio clip, the prosecutor who opened this episode describes the ghost gun kit shopping Nancy had done online in a bit more detail. If you want to go undetected, so she gets online, she starts researching ghost guns. Now, what is she not doing? She's not talking to friends and family about ghost gun purchases. 
or what ghost guns are, or the fact that they're unserialized and unregistered. She's not talking about that. She thinks that Nathaniel, in fact, has built one of these ghost guns before. She doesn't start there. So right from the get-go, this idea that it's research doesn't really add up. Nancy was in the market for a gun slide and a barrel, to be exact, a, a nine millimeter, the same gun she had at home. When confronted with this, she claims that her online scrolling for a ghost gun kit was research for one of her books. That's going to be her go-to here. Up, oh, I was researching that. Up, oh, I'm writing a story about that. Up. Oh. So the theory now is that she killed her husband with the nine millimeter, then went home and switched out the barrel and slide so ballistics wouldn't be a match. So right from the get-go, this idea that it's research doesn't really add up. She's looking for a gun that can be bought that is not going to be traced back to her. So she finds herself on this Ghost Guns website. She goes there several times, in fact, between November and the time she purchases it on December 24th. She goes to this website, and this is what she sees. They're advertised, unserialized, unregistered. She bounces around that website a little bit, back and forth, over, the, over that month. And then finally, on December 24th, she decides, I'm going to buy this gun. And it gets shipped to their house, and she gets it in early January. And as we stand in these pictures, one thing to keep in mind, she paid over $600 for this ghost gun, a gun that she could have walked down to the gun show if she wanted a complete gun or a gun store. And as she showed you, she bought a, a, a Glock 17 fully intact for about $500. So she's overpaying for a gun because it's unserialized and unregistered. Sometimes circumstantial evidence, in my opinion, is far more powerful than witness testimony and even other evidence because circumstances are what they are. They speak for themselves. They don't change. So you can absolutely convict somebody on circumstantial evidence if the jury believes it. But the thing about circumstantial evidence to, to keep in mind at this stage of the story is that investigators are using the circumstantial evidence to get them to the place where they can then get forensic evidence and other additional evidence, meaning get Nancy Brophy in a room, poke a finger at her and say, hey, you killed your husband. So it's, it, it's all part of the game. Every murder needs a motive, though motive does not have to be proven in court. Investigators need a motive to keep pressure on a suspect, provide them with a map of what to investigate next, and tie a bow around their case against a suspect. Motive also provides a jury, and us for that matter, with the reason why one person decides to murder another. We all want to know why. Motive is the story that gives us the answer. But let's take another short break here and come right back. In 2018, the Brophies were struggling financially. My bet is that Nancy's choice to quit the insurance racket and become a romance novelist sidelined their finances. And you don't usually make any money off of self-published books. In fact, they cost you money to put out into the world. There were no advances from publishers for Nancy Brophy. She was rejected by major publishing houses time and again, and the Brophies were spending far more money per month than they were bringing in, thus sending them into major debt. Now we're getting somewhere. 
that all being said, as investigators search for a motive, they begin to paint a very clear picture. The Brophys had taken out a loan against Daniel's 401k retirement plan. They lived off the money. This, mind you, while paying large life insurance premiums each month. Nancy bought several policies of which she was the beneficiary. The total was in the neighborhood of $1.5 million. Cool, mill and a half. And then get this, just four days after her husband is murdered, Nancy calls the police. She asks to speak to one of the detectives investigating the case. And what she says to him, well, you're not going to believe it. So I'm going to allow Nancy to explain it herself. But this may give you a laugh this afternoon. Uh, I don't want to be the stupid question of the day, but I think I need to be the stupid question of the day. Uh, so okay. my insurance company said, well, just have the detective write a letter that you're no longer a suspect. And I said, man, I just don't know that he's there. Huh? Uh, and I'm not sure that he looks at that way. But if you do, I get you to write the letter. My sister, when I told her this as a lawyer, laughed so hard she fell out of the chair. So why? Because, why would you need that? Because they don't want to pay. If it turns out that I secretly went down to the school and shot my husband. She asks if the department can provide a letter indicating that she is not a suspect in her husband's murder. The detective, you can hear him, is aghast, but also ready to keep her talking. Clearly surprised by this request, he asks Nancy why she needs such a letter. She says, quote, my insurance company is making me provide verification for a $40,000 life insurance claim, end quote. All right. Four days after his murder, Daniel Brophy, not even in the ground yet, and his wife actually says the words with her very own mouth, quote, they don't want to pay if it turns out that I secretly went down to the school and shot my husband, end quote. Like it writes itself. It does. It's like a great romance novel with murder in it, this this whole thing. It is. Truly. And furthermore, she only discloses a $40,000 policy to the detective. In fact, Nancy had called all of the insurance companies where she had policies on the same day. The 40K policy, incidentally, was the smallest of the policies she had. So another bell is ringing in the ears of detectives. Again, one that Nancy herself has rung. So here's something that percolated for me. Nancy had worked in insurance. And I don't know if she had worked in life insurance, but she'd worked in insurance. So obviously she knows how this stuff works. But wouldn't you also know that that's the first thing that insurance companies try to figure out? I mean, just turn on any crime show. Just one crime show. Just Just one episode of Dateline or Law and Order or whatever. One snapped, you might see Phelps. Yeah, you might see me talking about it. I I have. I have. You know, look, I always say this. There's three motivations for murder. Only three. Love, money, revenge. And of course, there's all kinds of things that fall under the umbrella of each. But love, money, revenge, period. Period. That's good, Phelps. Uh, I didn't make it up, but I've just passed it along. (laughs) Well, I'll give you credit for it anyway. Thank you. (laughs) In September 2018, Nancy Brophy 
is finally charged with her husband Daniel's murder. It takes four years and the length of one pandemic, but the case finally makes it to trial in May 2022. At the time of this recording, just a couple months ago. Now, murder trials can be tedious. I've sat through testimony that will go up against any amount of trazodone and put me to sleep. Motion arguments between lawyers lasting days. But also witness testimony that had me sitting bolt upright listening to every word. Murder trials tell a story. Each side argues their beliefs, trying to tie it together with the best evidence each side really has. And here, in this audio clip from the trial, the prosecutor honors the victim by telling the jury a few things about Daniel Brophy. Dan was a simple guy. He liked his life. He loved Nancy. He didn't want to change that. He liked his chickens, as you heard many times. Loved his garden. Sarah Gitchell even sat here and told you that he wanted a few more years in that garden. He had good soil. He wanted to keep going. Even after they cleaned up that yard a little bit, right back to gardening. Dan loved those coastal trips. He loved mushroom hunting. Most of all, he loved teaching. Loved his students. Was a mentor to how many people. Loved in the community. Dan didn't want to leave that. You didn't hear from a single person who sat up here and said Dan wanted to change. Dan wanted to leave teaching. Dan couldn't do it anymore. Nobody said that. In fact, you heard the opposite. Nancy Brophy faced a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Everest murder people. Loads of unimpeachable facts that place her at the scene of the murder, prove her to be a liar, as well as show her planning the murder up to the point of switching out barrels and slides on a ghost weapon. There is also the fact that she knew Daniel was dead before being told. During the course of her four-week trial, her legal team did what it could, despite a tidal wave of evidence against their client. And as a trial attorney, when you know you're down, sometimes a Hail Mary is the only pass you can make. So that's exactly what her lawyers attempt. Nancy is put on the stand to testify. Let me be clear. When a defendant takes the stand, they are desperate because no good defense attorney would put their client on the stand to face questions by the prosecution. They don't know what will be asked or how their client will respond. As she ducks and weaves through the prosecution's questions, Nancy has one answer up her sleeve whenever there's no easy explanation. Why were you shopping for ghost gun parts, Nancy? Oh, well, that was research for one of my books. We know that's bullshit. And please listen to how downright combative Nancy sounds on the stand during the prosecution's cross-examine in regards to the ghost gun kit she ordered online. You would agree that you never told law enforcement that you owned this ghost gun kit? No, because this ghost gun kit, despite the fact you refer to it as a weapon on a regular basis, is not a weapon unless I hit somebody over the head with the case. There's nothing about that gun kit that's a gun, except that if you spend a few hours and put it together, it could be a gun. But I've got eggs and uh, flour in my uh, pantry, and that's not an omelet either until you uh, put it together. You also never told the police about the slide and barrel that um, you purchased on eBay. 
Mr. Overstreet, when I talked to police in June, they asked me specific questions. My husband had just died. The fact that I was coherent at all is a miracle. The fact that they never came back to me after that for a follow-up interview, I thought was shocking. You know, I thought this was on the police. This wasn't on me. The police said, we're handling this. You just go home and rest. You know, you go home and take it one day at a time, you know. And they never contacted me again, except for the things that I they asked me for, which was Dan's schedule. I got that to them, and I was having trouble with their email, but I did what I was asked to do. Are you declining to answer my question? Perhaps not. What was your question? That was a lengthy answer for not remembering my question. Well, I go off on tangents. So I asked you, is it true that you did not tell the police about the slide and barrel? It is true. I did not tell the police about the slide and barrel. The slide and barrel that fit, would fit perfectly on the gun show gun that you purchased. The slide and barrel that I was using for research for my writing. I did not tell them about that. You can answer that question? I did. I said I did not tell them. Would you agree that it fit on the gun that well, you bought from the gun? It store? was the same thing. It could have been interchanged, yes. So although you owned, well, we'll get to that in just a second. Yeah, you also don't put flour in an omelet. That would be very dry. (laughs) And wouldn't it become a pancake if you did that? (laughs) Yes. In fact, it would. And that's also something you'd think you'd know after being married to a chef for 20-something years. (laughs) And that there in all of its glory is your typical narcissism from a woman who decided she was smart enough to withstand a cross-examination from a prosecution loaded with evidence against her. They spent an awful lot of time on this gun issue. It's a damning piece of evidence, no doubt. It provides the jury with an image of the murder weapon in Nancy's hands. That condescension in Nancy's voice, her pure detest for the prosecution, as in, how dare you question me about anything, just kind of comes out of her. I mean, it's who she is really, right? At one point, the prosecutor goes through the timeline of the state's case, mainly because Nancy disputed a lot of where she was on those days leading up to the murder. One point of contention was a gun range. That March, her phone had pinged off a tower that put her at a gun range. She was literally practicing how to kill her husband. But she claims Daniel wanted to buy property nearby, which was her reason for being in the area. Listen to how grandiose and insensitive she comes across. You know about the gun range. They I told know you about, about the gun range. Your car just happens to be out in that area on the 26th. I'm sorry, your phone happens to be out in that area on the 26th. And what I can tell you is Delilah Marbell's property is west of Banks. Vernonia is northwest. The area Dan wanted to look in is this area. And we, I was looking. You know, and I can tell you, we've been looking for a while. You'll see if you went back and looked at my uh, my uh, locations at the kiosk. I frequently was in that area looking once again, property, what would work. You know, you'll see, I'm all over town now. To be perfectly honest, I don't remember doing any of this, but I'm sure I did it. And since you brought it up so often, I have seriously thought about it. But all I can tell you is it wasn't a day where I thought, whoa, this will be new and different. This was just a day. And I'm assuming the reason I'm driving around out there 
in that area is to, because I look for property. This is not a situation where I have a clear memory of it. This is a situation where if I was out there on two random days in March, then what was happening was I was probably looking for property. And that is my best guess. Didn't you have lunch with someone that day? I could have. I don't remember. In Portland? I have no idea. Uh, I mean, let's go back. Let's look at the records. I can probably reconstruct. But uh, where does it say I had lunch? Didn't you go to Nicholas's restaurant in Northeast Portland on Broadway on the 26th? Okay, I could have. Does that sound familiar? I go there frequently. I have a friend who really likes to go there, and, and we frequently meet and talk about writing there. And who were who you meeting there? Well, uh, it's somebody who hasn't testified. It's a woman named Marilyn Hale. Marilyn Hull. Okay. Hull, H-U-L-L. So on the 26th, you uh -huh. get up. You Google how to load a Glock 9 millimeter. Uh-huh. You drive out to an area that wait, happens wait, to I don't know that I Googled that, but if you say I did, I'd, I'd like to see that. But I could have. I mean, once again, I am, I am messing with gun pieces, you know. I am not messing with uh, research. I am not messing with, uh, so I could have put that in that morning because I don't think I gave up the gun research until the beginning of April when I knew I had to get back and finish my other story. Part of the problem is, is if you don't finish the story you're on, then you have story pieces everywhere. and. You know, people say, what's the most difficult thing about writing a book? It's finishing the book. You have to force yourself to finish it. When you've written yourself into a hole, it's real easy to see a new idea out there that would be more interesting. You have to go back and force yourself. So, yeah, I had a few months where I flirted with guns. But real frankly, my goal was to finish the book I was on. And look, I'm playing these clips of what she says to give you an accurate picture of what a true murderer sounds like. It's rare that a defendant in a case this serious testifies on her own behalf. When they do, it's a raw, unfiltered example of a sociopath or psychopath on display, but can also be extremely laughable. Nancy Brophy was almost funny on the witness stand. Hour after hour of bloviating nonsense. Her lawyer at times dropped her head as Nancy banged on and on, hostile and belligerent, expecting everyone to believe what was coming out of her mouth as she talked in circles, sealing her own fate. On May 25, 2022, Nancy stood with her COVID mask on, wide-eyed and stammering. Her attitude was, how dare all of you? And this was as the judge read the verdict. But it doesn't matter how a killer feels about the verdict. It only matters how the jury feels. Of course, I probably don't even need to tell you at this point that the Multnomah County, Oregon jury, after just a day of deliberation, found Nancy Brophy guilty on all counts, including murder in the first degree. Quote, it was a long road to this verdict. Daniel Brophy's family waited for justice for nearly four years. Today marks an inflection point in their journey to see accountability for the tragic murder of their loved one and move forward with their lives, end quote. And that's from Senior Deputy District Attorney Sean Overstreet, who you've heard in this episode. Very few people will ever get away with murder. Thank God. When I saw the evidence in this case, the Google searches, 
the eBay purchases, the insurance money. I wondered for a moment if Nancy actually believed she would get away with this or if she simply wanted to get caught and then put on a show in court. Nancy Crampton Brophy was given a life sentence on June 13th, 2022. She'll be eligible for parole in 25 years and she'll be 96 years old if she makes it that long. Look, in all seriousness, you know, we joked around in this episode a little bit more than we usually do and how can we not? But I just want to say it does not take away from the fact that a man was murdered and this woman took his life and she's going to jail for the rest of her life where she belongs. That's it for this week. Tune in next week, same time, same podcasting station for more murder, madness, and mayhem. As always, be safe and be aware. Sources for today's episode come from Multnomah County DA's Office Press Release, How to Murder Your Husband Writer Convicted of Murdering Husband by Mike Baker, New York Times, How to Murder Your Husband, See Jane Publish Website Archive, Woman Who Wrote How to Murder Your Husband Essay Faces Murder Trial in Husband's Death, People Magazine by Christine Pelasek. She wrote How to Murder Your Husband, Did She Do It? New York Times by Mike Baker. NIST.gov. Forensic Science. Ballistics. Archives of public feed of Nancy Brophy's trial on YouTube. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.